the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Dungeons and Dragons levels up to 40, and its designers party down until they lose all sense of alignment. Airship Envy and Death by Zeppelin. Plus, part one of Frank Chadwick's excellent short story, Murder on the Hochflieger Ost. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We continue with part two of our two-part interview on the 40th anniversary of Dungeons & Dragons, the role-playing game, the one that brought gaming to the masses back in the 70s and 80s and 90s and continuing and continuing. Uh, we'll keep talking with three of the chief designers and forces behind the development of the modern game of D&D. We have D&D version 3 chief designer Jonathan Tweet. We have D&D 4 chief designer Rob Heinso. And we have one of the founders of gaming company Wizards of the Coast, creators of Magic the Gathering, of course, a company that is the current owner of the D&D brand. We have Scaff Elias, who was in many ways the driving force behind Wizards' acquisition and development of the game after it acquired it from TSR. This interview is a follow-up to the excellent piece that's currently on the Bain.com website, written by gaming writer and ebook pioneer Bob Kruger. All of these D&D guys appear throughout the article, and Bob has brought them together for the podcast. Since what I know about role-playing games would fit into a rattlesnake's empathy for mammalian parental love, I asked Bob to moderate the discussion, and he's done a good job. We also have part one of the two-part complete serialization of a short story. The story is Murder on the Hochflieger Ost and is by Frank Chadwick, the author of the excellent science-based steampunk novel The Forever Engine, which is currently at booksellers everywhere. This story is set in the world of that novel, which includes, of course, cool airships. It's steampunk, after all. But before orc hacking and airship assassination, Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. March is a coming in, and so is a new Bane hardcover. In fact, our new March hardcover is a really cool alternate history that asks the question, what if America lost the Revolutionary War? Would the American cause still find a way? This is Liberty, 1784, and it's by the author of Himmler's War and 1920 America's Great War, Robert Conroy. Yep, and also debuting in March is a reissue with a brand new cover, of The Fall of Atlantis, Marion Zimmer Bradley's epic fantasy about that ancient and legendary realm. Atlantis? Yes. Who did this new cover? That was Sam Kennedy. He's also done Balance of Trade by Leon Miller and The Undead Hordes of Kangool. Oh, yeah, that was a great cover. Excellent. And we want to mention that March sees the mass market publication of Charles E. Gannon's excellent science fiction novel, Fire with Fire. We're happy to say that Fire with Fire is a Nebula Award finalist this year. These and a wonderful slate of trade paperbacks and other mass markets, including Shadow of Freedom, by the way, are now at booksellers everywhere, so check them out. Check them out. 
And now here is part two of our two-part roundtable on Dungeons and Dragons at 40, the quest for a game that breaks all the rules. This year marks the 40th anniversary of Dungeons and Dragons. Can you believe it? The role-playing game that took over popular culture and transformed us all into geeks or, depending on how you look at it, opened our imaginations to a new way to experience that SF and fantasy staple, the sense of mystery and wonder. I know, I was there back in 1975 when it happened to me. So, to mark the 40th anniversary of D&D, this month we are debuting an excellent article on the Bane.com website by my friend Bob Kruger. The article is called Dungeons and Dragons at 40, the quest for a game that breaks all the rules, and it's available at the Bain.com website. In addition to being an author and president and CEO of pioneering ebook company ElectricStory.com, Bob has been a content writer and creator in the gaming industry for decades. He's Seattle-based and has worked at Microsoft's Asheron's Run and at Wizards of the Coast and lots more. Bob is also the driving force behind the new Bain mobile site, by the way which we'll be rolling out soon. Bob knows many of the designers who have created and recreated the various versions of Dungeons & Dragons over the year, the still-living ones, that is, and he has invited these folks to participate in a roundtable discussion with us for this podcast. So, Bob, I'm handing the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast scepter over to you. Take it away. Okay, well, um, Tony's already introduced me. The other participants we have here are Dungeons & Dragons uh, 3.0 edition designer Jonathan Tweet, who is also um, one of the R&D leads for Wizards of the Coast for several years. Uh, we have uh, edition 4.0 uh, designer Rob Hainsu and uh, Scaff Elias, who, uh, Scaff, are you still involved with uh, Richard Garfield at Three Donkeys? Uh, I am, yes. <laughs> I was at Wizards for a long time, worked with uh, Jonathan and Rob both. Yeah, Scaff goes way back uh, in the history of Wizards. He was one of the early playtesters and designers on Magic the Gathering, and he was instrumental in the formulation and promotion of the D20 system that um, came out of Wizards' acquisition of Dungeons & Dragons. So we have Jonathan, Rob, and Scaff with us here. Right, well, maybe Rob wants to talk then a little bit about that. What was the new vision of 4th edition? 4th edition was an interesting case in which Wizard decided that it needed a new edition to increase its sales because new editions always sold really, really well. Uh, you know, whenever you did a new player's handbook, congratulations, you just had the multi-giant seller that was going to sell so many copies. Um, and at the time we started 4th edition, it was interesting because I think the design teams had decided, you know, well, I, I'm going to say it, when you're doing books like, I think it was called Stormrack, which are like, whenever you... Whenever a line ends up doing an Oceans book... Yeah, that's the end. It's usually a sign. Oh, dear. Now, that's, that's a little cool, but it is... But it is... It's somewhat true in the sense that the, the, the ideas that were coming out at that time indicated that Wizards had mined the best stuff and wasn't really 
you know, making the best of its stuff. Now, what's weird is, as a spin-off of doing fourth edition, one interesting thing that happened is a bunch of the stuff that was in early editions of fourth was then leaking its way into third as tests, you know, like uh, when Rich Baker did the Book of Nine Swords, and that was really interesting. And third, third, the 3.5 stuff had a bit of a, like, hey, there's really cool design stuff here. So I think that amusingly enough, I think that that reason for doing fourth edition needn't have existed. Um, we could have done the cool stuff. Yeah, absolutely. We could have done the cool stuff with third, but people weren't willing to. It yeah. wasn't. There was a there was a clinging to the formula and an unwillingness to experiment with the formula. Um, yeah. But Wizards simultaneously really wanted to go ahead and figure out a way to bring new players into the hobby. So bizarrely, well, for, third edition is actually a pretty complicated game in the sense that if you're the game master, it takes an awful lot of work uh, to go ahead and really do it right. And uh, fourth edition, uh, one of the big mandates was make the game hugely easier to be the game master of um, and uh, make it play faster. Uh, the I think that the hugely easy to be a game master of worked out. Making it play faster probably didn't. Not really. I mean, I think afterwards when it got published, people were like, oh, my God, it's just like a computer game. And, you know, the irony there is that, well, I'm not a computer game player. You know, not really. Um and so that wasn't really it. But what it was was designed so that people who came to D&D from having played computer games would feel comfortable in it, um, which was something that Wizards Market Research indicated they didn't necessarily feel all that comfortable necessarily, I think, coming to third. Um, now, I don't think those elements of the strategy worked precisely, you know, in terms of saying... Because what it was is those those things are saying, hey, there's this giant untapped audience that you're trying to to get. Well, I don't think that that necessarily has turned out to be true. I mean, I think that in a weird way, it's like um, the the fact is is that no, gaming is a hobby that has a dedicated core of people. Um, I, you'll also notice that fourth edition, when Jonathan says it didn't have a revision. The brand goal was to go ahead and recreate the world to somehow make it uniquely Dungeons and Dragons world. You know, to give a spin on things that were uh, our own, and that happened. Um, I think, in retrospect, for me, you know, one lesson that I gradually learned is, you know, if you're going to go ahead and like revise a beloved franchise, change either the system or the world. Preferably, don't change both. Yeah. And I think Jonathan's, you know, experience was, well, they changed the system, but the world stayed intact, and it really wasn't, you know, and therefore people would just transition. Whereas with fourth edition, you had, look, you're changing the system dramatically. Don't also tell people, oh, that thing that was a demon, well, it's now a devil. And uh, alignment, you liked it, well, we're not really using it. You know, so there's an element of um, <laughs> don't change, don't don't pull the rug out and change everything. Hand them right. a glass that's interesting to drink from. Yeah. I want to put a little background in here because Scaff was also working behind the scenes uh, on D&D. And, and Scaff, maybe you want to talk about um, a little bit about the direction you tried to push D&D in to be sort of more, um, you know, faster to play, clearer, less ambiguous. Like you, um, you were working on a, a sort of a, board game version of Dungeons & Dragons for a while, and then that's sort of where flanking rule came from, and the flanking rule for third edition was like a big breakthrough. It was something that was 
relatively simple and gave you the sense of I'm stabbing somebody in the back, but it didn't have to deal with facing or what have you. So maybe, Scott, you could talk a little bit about that aesthetic. Yeah, I think uh, what what um, yeah, my involvement was uh, actually a, a, a lot of the stuff you're saying about what third edition did. We, uh, uh, you know, you were obviously the driver on third, but that was the philosophy that we had of uh, evening everything up, just making it completely um, uh, transparent as far as what should happen, because we, we saw that as one of the biggest impediments to bringing people that were uh, you know, like say magic customers into the game or just customers, people in general. Uh, we wanted to make all, everything, um, yeah, just, uh, all run on the same system and, uh, but more importantly, not, not leave anything up to, uh, interpretation. And, and that's the only way that a trading card game can possibly work. And, uh, and so to take some of that philosophy into D&D. So, like, for instance, flanking. Am I behind the guy? Am I not behind the guy? Well, there's two ways you can do it. You can um, you can have this concept of facing and keep very careful track of it, and it's really hard to do, and it's kind of annoying. Uh, or you can do what most people did, which is just sort of talk about it, and then you have arguments with the dungeon master, and it puts a lot of pressure on the dungeon master and a lot of pressure on the players. Or you can do what we, we did in the... the um, I guess you might call it a, an adventure game or something. I, I don't know that it would be a role-playing game. Uh, precursor to uh, <clears throat> some of the third edition rules, which is that abstr- uh, codify it precisely, uh, but abstracted enough that the rule turns out to be pretty simple. So things like flanking and the way attacks of opportunity worked and the way uh, reach worked and those sorts of things. And, and also the same sort of things with... Um, I mean, a lot of role-playing systems had done this before, but take things you, you know, you want, like, uh, the fighter to do that he had done in the past, and he says, oh, I used to, I leap over here, and I hit this guy, or I whirl around and do this, or, you know, uh, or you could talk your dungeon master into saying, well, there's, you know, there's three orcs. Can I hit, you know, uh, can I sweep across and hit them all? And And those things were allowed, you know, in 1979, you could, convince your dungeon master, and he'd say, like, yeah, that's cool, do it. And in, in storytelling games today, you can do that. The idea was take those, uh, distill their actions, codify them, put them into the game. That's pretty much it. That's how a lot of those things came about, uh, like the flanking rule. Yeah, talking about the spirit of, like, bringing out some of the fun things, that was also part of what 4th Edition was about. You know, there was sort of a, I think, a realization um, in, in, in WOTC R&D that we... We, you know, the wizard and the cleric and a few other spellcasting classes had all the juice and, and actually got to make the choices that mattered when you were playing. And, uh, we wanted to go ahead and give all the characters, uh, abilities that would allow them to make those interesting choices that would feel really flavorful. So that, like, when Scaff's talking about the, you know, the, hey, the fighter jumped over here and did this amazing thing and attack and then hit the other guy. Yeah, we wanted to bring that out more. Now, uh, fourth edition, therefore, that was one of the mechanical design goals that definitely played a, a part in how it, and stuff came out. But I think that SCAP, you know, the push that SCAP and yeah, were doing I, behind the scenes think, was definitely part of that. I, I think the idea was, uh, and again, coming from more the, uh, uh, honestly, probably we were just not as good role players as, uh, you know, Jonathan and 
uh, as creative and, you know, as good dungeon masters. And so it's like, you have to kind of, uh, and, and a lot of people were annoyed at the sort of kind of general mechanical bent that, um, Dungeons and Dragons went in, but the philosophy of, uh, taking the cool actions and not leaving them in the hands of, uh, imagination definitely reduces sort of, um, the possibility space of it. But at the same time, it opens it up to the 90% of the masses that kind of wouldn't do that in their role-playing game because they're not sharp enough or the dungeon master's not sharp enough or their playgroup's not experienced enough. So um, I wanted to talk about this um, this problem in trying to capture the lightning in a bottle of D&D that, that Rob kind of touched on. Um, originally, when... TSR was trying to bring D&D to a mass audience from its hobbyist audience. It had to make certain compromises, and they eventually led to the decline of the brand, I thought. Then you you conceived the D20 system to kind of put the D&D brand back in the hands of the hobbyists, which really revised it. But then again, you had to enter the cycle of, of creating a product that could be marketed. And these imperatives are kind of at war with each other, right? So first let's talk about uh, D20, what your involvement was. I guess this is mostly uh, Scaff and Jonathan. Um, where the D20 concept came from and what it was trying to address as far as revitalizing the brand and what it's led to. I want to jump in and say, like all really good ideas, it has, a thousand, you know, grandfathers. Like, uh, I, I didn't even know so much about the Mike Cook thing that you pointed out in your article. But so, like, I, I can I remember before we purchased TSR, uh, this was a, you know, a goal of Wizards. Uh, you know, uh, Peter and 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 Richard and I had talked about it before the the purchase even went through on a general level. And then even in interviews, I can remember interviewing uh, the TSR people again for their position, Bill Slavichak, and actually Steve Winter for a while. Uh, I guess he decided not to come, but he was there. And uh, it came up repeatedly in the discussions that we would ask as interview questions um, because we, you know, sort of knew the direction was going. And then, and then eventually, uh, and then lots of, the, lots of uh, some people objected, but I know Jonathan was a strong proponent of it, and I know, like, Ryan Dancy was absolutely key and getting it pushed through because he's the guy, you know, with sort of the brand responsibility for actually taking on the business, uh, positives and negatives and the risk and all that sort of stuff. So, um, in retrospect, right, you've got a lot of people understanding it's a good idea, but you also have everybody being terrified of it. Because, and as right, as rightfully they should be, you're releasing the rights to your game. Like, um, it was an obviously good and obviously uh, dangerous idea. What was your goal with D20? Yeah. What what did – I mean, Watsi wanted to revitalize the brand, right? I mean, they must have seen that this would – the D20 no, no, actually, system you know, would, would help honestly, do that. Honestly, honestly, the revitalization of the brand was not part of the goal. And and I think a, a large reason for that is maybe uh, uh, overconfidence. Like uh, the system that the third edition design team had come up with was really good. Uh, our marketing and distribution clout was amazing. So we sort of, I guess I would say, assume that the revitalization would happen. I mean, I don't think we thought it would do as well as it did, but the um, the D20 system 
was was more is much more a longer term type thing. It wasn't a short term like we need this to revitalize the brand. It was uh, two things. One, uh, even though uh, we never reached the benefits of it, uh, looking back at the old TSR numbers for their products, it, it was really interesting to see where they were making their money. Um, and it, it always it surprised me when you look at the numbers and, um, you know, the smaller their supplement and their adventures, they, they weren't, you know, when you considered all the factors, they weren't actually making that much money off them and the, and the margin was horrible. So the idea is, well, let's pick out what all the super high margin products are and, uh, and do those and, uh, let everyone else do all the other stuff, control the, you know, the core that you need to control. And, um, and then secondarily, uh, because, you know, uh, Wizards had just gone through this, I guess, you know, uh, sorry, not Wizards. Dungeons Dragons had gone through this relatively scary period where for a long time, um, the White Wolf stuff was, I don't think it ever passed it in sales, but it, it was a, a major, major, major threat. And so, um, so then just kind of throw everything on its head and just force everyone to understand this thing that Jonathan said like two questions ago. The, the role playing, is Dungeons and Dragons, period. You, you, there may be variations right. on it. You can go out, have fun, uh, but but you you need to understand fundamentally that uh, that that it's it's Dungeons and Dragons and that it's owned by Wizards of the Coast, and uh, and everyone needs the player's handbook. Everybody needs their player's handbook, and learn there first. And you want to go do something else? Do something else. Then splinter into a thousand pieces based upon the fact that you like to play in a world with no elves or a world where elves get an infinite number of actions per turn. Um, and that's a jab at you, Rob. Well, we maintain, well, we maintain the, um, I'll, I'll talk to you about that jab later. <laughs> I want to break in here and talk a yeah, little okay. bit about Ryan Dancy. He was really the architect of the D20 system. And, um, he was really big on the idea that the more people there are playing D&D, the better a game it is because, or people are contributing to it, or, you know, you can find a greater variety of campaigns and what have you. And so what the, what the D20 system did very subversively is it turned the role-playing game industry from being a bunch of people who are trying to get you to quit playing D&D and play their stuff instead. Now it's, the role-playing industry, to a large extent, became professionals who are trying to get you to play third edition D&D so that you can buy their D20 product. Well, let's take a look at it. You've got D20 Call of Cthulhu. Um, You've got um, the LucasArts uh, Jedi Knight games, right? Um, Knights of the Old Republic and its sequel that um, use the D20 system. It, It had huge reach, and co-opted those well, brands yep. that considered themselves yeah. separate. It, it's, it's interesting. Not only did third edition sales skyrocket, but uh, everybody's sales did. I mean, the amount of sales running through independent uh, role-playing games, you know, just absolutely went through the roof. And so you, like, you, you sit and you wonder, like, well, how can this magic happen? You know, how can both go up? And I, 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 I do believe that the core reason is that maybe this goes back to your exception-based stuff, you know, relearning a system every time, someone sitting down and coming up and having to create a system, 
and everyone having to learn the system from the customer level over and over again and read it and pay for all that ink, it's like you, there's a lot of wasted hours in there that aren't that fun. Like if you stick to the creative parts, the thing that makes your system unique, and you run off the court, you get a, uh, an enormous sort of mental savings from the point of view of the customer. Not everybody, some people like to read new random rules, but the vast majority of actual players, I mean, that's how everyone can be helped with this sort of thing, like operating system. And, and uh, I also want to reiterate what Jonathan said. Everybody had lots of uh, thoughts and ideas about D20. There was only one man whose head was literally on the chopping block, and that was Ryan. He deserves a lot of credit for so, that. So I want to follow up on this because this was pretty important to me personally in a way. I saw this happen. I mean, I came into Wizards right as this occurred. And I was part of the, you know, working in the trenches. And reality is, a lot of people in Wizards, even though it was succeeding, they still didn't like it. And so the irony is that <laughs> later on, when the glut, there was a glut. There was a glut of bad adventures and bad products. Everybody and their brother who used to go ahead and be publishing, like, a mineograph bad cover thing was now publishing stuff that supposedly was for D&D. The distributors bought it. And a lot of times the distributors bought things without really with making bad decisions. And they ended up with stacks and warehouses of material that could never be sold. Now, ironically, when it came time to do fourth edition, as designers, we thought the entire time, of course we have an OGL. How could you possibly not have an OGL? Yeah, the open game license. The open gaming license. Of course you're going to do the same thing a third edition did because you've already given away third edition. You can't possibly not do the same thing with fourth edition. But it turned out that wasn't true, and it turned out that the business people, the business people, or the people controlling the thing at Wizards, actually really resented the idea that anybody else was making money off of D&D. Yeah, I'd rather I make one dollar no, less as long as you make two dollars less. Then it's a win. Mathematical, mathematical insanity. Yeah. yeah, it was terrible. It was horrible. And, <laughs> a ne- and not so, a zero sum game, really a, a negative like story, sum game. It was. It was yeah. bad. And that meant in a certain sense, I mean, honestly, if if fourth edition had had an OGL, there would have been a lot of companies that was cooperating and trying to get people to use it. There would have been people publishing things for it. And, you know, I, I think uh, it's entirely the, the hilarious truth is that Pathfinder and Paizo have probably done better, almost certainly have done better. But if Wizards had gone ahead... So- and, and and just made it available. The irony is that wizards wizards only would have profited, and it, there there it is. Crazy. Yeah. Well, so, this is the, yeah. This is the same attitude. This is the same attitude I saw going back to my idea that D and D is lightning that's tough the bottle. It's the same attitude that uh, it drives me crazy. Um, that you know, in the late '80s, TSR. Had, had put the game on decline for a similar reason, and that's that's to not acknowledge that it's the fans that create the game. It's a tradition, and you need to respect yeah. that, and that every edition of D&D is really just a new dialogue with the core concept. It's not it, it's not yeah. this thing that you can set apart. You know, well, it needs to live. I mean, I think you can, you can watch D&D Next. I mean, the entire D&D Next uh attempt, following on the heels of 4th edition, which kicked the OGL on the teeth and therefore created Pathfinder. Um, but, you know, that's one possible way to see these, those events. D&D Next is an attempt by Wizards to 
acknowledge the things you're talking about right now and say, dear fans, you are hugely important. Please come play with us. We know you should. And and so you're right, Bob. Now, the weird part is, therefore, there are several cyclical relationships inside of the creation of, Wizards, of Dungeons & Dragons that play out over the years. You know, it's like at this stage, no, it's ours, all ours. And at this other stage, dear fans, you know, you're, you're, you are us. And so, and we are you and we are all together. But those things just go back and forth. And sometimes they go back and forth in ways that make no sense. Well, so, having the OGL out there, having the competition, um, has obviously been really healthy for the brand. Um, and let's talk a, a little bit about the competition. I mean, you've got 13th Age now. I mean, you're, you're in competition with your own invention, both of you guys, right? Um, 13th Age is a D20-based uh, D&D variant. I mean, we are, we are definitely showing our fans what kind of D20 game we like, right? So this is a game where it has reform, story-oriented, character-centered elements like the games that I was known for before 3rd Edition, um, and it's got, um, you know, really clean system. Like Rob worked on it, fourth edition. Um, you know, it's it's competition, but it's also just part of the bigger dialogue. I know, um, you know, people are using elements from it in Pathfinder and and what have you. And D and D. And D and D. Yeah. And D and D next, amazingly, like the icon system. Of, yeah. So reality is, we tried to design a game that was exactly what we wanted to play, and that's where the storytelling stuff comes in, which really we couldn't quite do an indie-style game while working at Wizards. Uh, and also to go ahead and make it a design toolkit that can be plugged in uh, for people who want different aspects in the games they're playing. Right. Now, that's us recognizing that there are many, many good ways to play D&D right now. And, uh, you know, ideally, ideally we'll get people playing the one we're doing, but simultaneously we're hoping to get people looking at it uh, just to find out cool things they can do in their own game. Did you want to talk real briefly about um, 13th Age, what the uh, the concept is? I mean, why the name, 13th Age? The idea is that there have been 12 ages in the Empire, uh, and each one, you know, there's been prosperity followed by some sort of collapse, and then that's the end of an age, and then a new age starts. Um, and the chose 13 because it was ominous. <laughs> and it's the right size, I think, the eight. The worst thing you can do to, uh, like a D&D campaign is to give it 10 pages of history at the front. That, that everyone has to know what that history is and, and, you know, it's, it's like this, uh, it becomes a big list that you have to go to to get approval for what you want to invent in the game. Oh, can I invent, uh, you know, a ruined castle here? I have to look into history and see whether that would be legal. And we, we wanted to provide a world where you can sort of do whatever you want. So the idea is every age could be a little bit different, and we describe a world in our uh, rule book, but that's not the way the world has always been, and it's not the way the world is always going to be. And so that implicitly gives you permission to change your campaign. So your 13th age is going to be different from somebody else's 13th age. It gives this idea of cycles and changes and uh, not necessarily progress, but variety. And so, if you want to put a castle in the middle of somewhere, you know, in one of those previous ages, for sure, you could bet somebody could have built a castle there. So, it opens you up 
creatively to be able to to do whatever you want. And then the, what that world is, it's sort of the coolest bits of everybody's classic D&D campaign. So it's got a high druid and an emperor and a prince of shadows, a lich king, the dwarf king. All these sort of standard elements are built into the world so that it's familiar enough that, again, as a player or a game master, you can invent whatever you want. We're not saying play in our world instead of in a standard D&D world. We're saying play in a really cool standard D&D world. Here it is, 13th Age. And because we're starting people off in that basically half-designed but very familiar world, the first thing you do when you create your player character is you create the one unique thing about yourself. And, uh, you know, the, the, the idea is that you give the player an immediate stake in telling a story that they've never been able to tell. Uh, you know, the, you'll have players going, I am the, my soul is held in a giant sapphire by the blue dragon, and I am a deathless pirate. And you look at the player and you're like, really? That's your one unique thing? And it's like, yes. It's like, okay. Now they've told you a lot about what the campaign is going to be about. And they've given you story hooks right away that you can go ahead and do as a game master. So I think one of the things that Jonathan and I are really happy about with 13th Age is that when people start a campaign, most people tell us, and it's certainly our been experience, that the very first sessions have a richness of storytelling and interwoven dialogue and playing off of each other that actually that comes in, in, in other D, D20 games comes after maybe four or five, six sessions that people get to know their characters. But, but by sort of harnessing ideas from indie storytelling games and or refining them for ourselves, we, we've sort of jump-started that um, in, in, in people helping to create the world and therefore having a lot of fun um, making up a story that, that's just as – making up a – helping make up a story together from the very start – with game mechanics that encourage that. It's a lot like what 3rd Edition did for, uh, say, backstabbing. They're now doing for storytelling. <laughs> How's that? That's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, make it simpler. Make it more accessible. But make it sim- make the simpler and codified, and, and that, that thereby making it more access- accessible. Well, there was the one thing that I wanted to, to ask about um, real, real briefly. Um, there's been this idea that D&D is role-playing and vice versa, but there's there's a sense in which it's not. Um, you know, the D&D has this fantasy, heroic fantasy focus. Um, it is kind of like Rob said, and I quoted him in the essay, or the article, sorry, um, a classical education for the masses. It brought together manicores and you know, fairies from England and trolls from Norway and, and all that stuff and kind of kind of standardized it. Um, so uh, how important is that um, to keeping D&D together, um, you know, keeping it that, that core concept? That's a really interesting question, and it's really hard to split up, right? Like, if, if the first role-playing game had not been about you know, heroes fighting monsters from folklore and myth. Hmm. Would 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 that fantasy thing have come and replaced whatever started it, or would what that other genre have been the 
you know, the dominant form, and we would all think that that's the most natural form to role play in. You know, I think it's possible that really, based on the way things work, that first role-playing game was, and people were working on something like role-playing games for years, that first role-playing game eventually was going to get built. It probably was going to be fantasy. And I, and there, there really, there really is something, I think, to the fantasy elements that are in D&D. Uh, like, when a kid gets a dinosaur book, they can look at all the dinosaurs and how big are dinosaurs compared to each other and when do they live and which dinosaur could kill which other dinosaur in a fight, right? And, and D&D lets you do that for monsters, right? Oh, how big are giants? How big are dragons? What if they got into a fight? How many hit points do they have? How tall are they? Where do they live? What's their culture like? It gives you this, you know, that, that desire for encyclopedic information about cool things, right? So very mythic and universal, and that would be obviously the big topic for some other conversation. But so um, why don't we close on that? Um, uh, if Rob has a final statement about it, because it was his quote um, uh, about um, Dungeons and Dragons: Will it survive as long as we're interested in monsters? Will Will the idea of Dungeons and Dragons cohere and go forward, or is Dungeons and Dragons going to um, just splinter into some general role-playing, um, you know, concept. That is the style of big question that Jonathan is more adept <laughs> at answering uh, than I am because, I mean, I my, my answer to you is that the way culture works, the way our culture works, Dungeons and Dragons is going to continue, okay? I mean, that's just a, a fact. There's there's so many people playing versions of Dungeons and & Dragons, and they teach friends, and they get into it, and it'll just happen. Uh, if Wizards, you know, somehow, uh, if, if whoever owned D&D stopped publishing it and said there's no more Dungeons & Dragons, uh, people would still be playing it. Now, the reality is, is whoever owns Dungeons & Dragons is going to keep trying to advance the brand, yeah. and it's going to have computer games come out that, that, that sell it, and, you know, and so forth. So, therefore, the answer is, just on a flat-out historical cultural level, absolutely people are going to keep playing it. And, uh, you know, there's no question about it. Now, I, I'm i an anthropologist by background, and so the, the funniest piece of that for me is when we have this conversation, you know, I love the story Mike Merle told once about, I think it was Mike, where uh, somebody he knew was a social worker who had gone into the middle of Toronto. Uh, I don't know if it was Toronto. It was a Canadian city that actually had, like, housing projects and they found people who were still playing first edition Dungeons and Dragons without ever knowing that there had been any other things published. You know, and so like the equivalent of like the, the lost tribe, the lost tribe, you know, that like untouched by civilization. I mean, that's happening. It's like I know a kid who grew up the same I mean, there's a okay, there's a guy doing art for a project I'm on now who grew up in a yurt in the rainforest with no power no internet, and all he had was a couple old D&D books, and he made up all the rest of it with no contact with anybody else. So the weird questions you're asking me, the answer is absolutely yes. Now, I find the individual flourishing of these strange things almost more interesting than, like, the big, broad culture stuff, because the broad culture stuff is attempting to be mandated by business concerns. It's like, you know, 
particular companies make particular products and try to sell as many units of them as they can. Meanwhile, human beings end up using these things and creating stuff that you would never guess, you know, and, and, and just like, I, you know, I, we all know people with interesting stories, and if you keep your ears open, you find out things about people playing role-playing games that you would just never expect, and uh, that's one of the things I love. So the answer, Bob, is yes, even if the zombie apocalypse hits, nobody is going to be playing D&D somewhere. And so when I look ahead 40 years, it's hard to imagine people still playing D&D the old-fashioned way, whatever, it's all the great gizmos and distractions people are going to have in 40 years. But I think it's even harder for me to imagine that nobody will be playing traditional DMs. Well, what we don't understand about the future and those types of things is, first of all, what the technological curve actually ends up being, because there are all kinds of ways technological curves might trend downward. Secondly, there's always, there's always um, a kickback, a sort of a pushback where the tradition of how you did things simpler are interesting. And in fact, that partly, so a little while ago when you talked to people of projections of, there was this doom and gloom in the industry, computer games are eating us, yada, yada, yada. And then people uh, started selling really great board games from Germany that made people go, wait a minute, no, there's an awful lot of wonderful board games and people like seeing each other face to face and playing them. You know, and now those, those same games are also being played iOS, you know, which hasn't necessarily killed them face to face. So I... I understand what you're saying about 40-year projections are really hard, but I also think that don't – here's a weird thing. Because D&D is now tradition, you can't underestimate the weird force of tradition. The weird force of tradition indicates that, yes, people will be playing much the same way they are deliberately as a cultural statement, which is kind of strange, but probably true. Okay. Well, thank you guys very much. I guess the summary is that there will be D&D, and it will – have dragons and it will have dungeons. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bob. The article is called Dungeons and Dragons at 40, The Quest for a Game That Broke All the Rules. It's by Bob Kruger and is available at Bain.com website right now. Thanks. Thank you, Bob, and thank you all for being with us. Thank you, Tony. Say that more enthusiastically. That was fun. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, thanks, Tony. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> that's the kind of ribbing I would get from Rob. So he's grateful that uh, you did that for him. Welcome to an alternate 1887. France has gone Fabian, and Gabriel Cubier is a secret agent for the Democratic and Social Republic of France. Her task? Trade a document case of landscape drawings for one containing stolen blueprints vital to the British war effort. But Gabrielle finds that espionage is not always as easy when the man she believes to be her contact winds up dead. Now, a thousand feet above the Bavarian countryside, Gabrielle must solve a murder before she's found out and pitched into the wild blue yonder by the culprit. Here is part one of a two-part serialization of a prequel to Frank Chadwick's alt-history novel, The Forever Engine. It's called Murder on the Hochflieger Ost. Murder on the Hochflieger Ost by Frank Chadwick. Munich, Bavaria, aboard the landed Hochflieger Ost, December 10, 1887, late afternoon. Gabrielle Courbière, 
finished pinning up her hair and looked in the stateroom mirror to be certain she was presentable. She was. Men told her she was more than simply presentable, that she was in fact strikingly beautiful. If asked to describe her own appearance, she would have said it was ordinary in every respect, not usually tall or short, figure neither exceptionally heavy nor thin, facial features very regular. It occurred to her, and not for the first time, that it was odd how men found the average of feminine characteristics so exceptional. She accepted this judgment on its face. She had no means of judging its validity, as she did not find women sexually arousing herself. Gabrielle had difficulty understanding any emotion which she did not herself experience, and so the feeling of others remained generally elusive, and their behaviors often surprising and seemingly irrational. Despite the potentially fatal consequences of such a disability in a spy, the men who headed the intelligence apparatus of the Democratic and Social Republic of France had given Gabrielle this covert assignment of a most critical nature. They had done so because she, who until then had worked only in the research department, asked for it and provided an extensive list of arguments as to why she was the correct choice, a list which would have been tiresomely long coming from any other aspirant, but which her male superiors had listened to with the appearance of rapt attention, although, in truth, few of them would have afterwards been able to tell you even a fraction of what she had said. Her assignment, while requiring both discretion and brazenness in turn, did not seem very difficult. She was to contact an anarchist agent and exchange one leather document tube for another. They would make the exchange on the Hochflieger Ost, the enormous and luxurious commercial zeppelin, which linked Berlin to Istanbul by way of Munich, Vienna, and Budapest. Gabrielle had boarded the zeppelin in Berlin early that morning, and the other agent was to board here in Munich. Once aloft over Austria and the Balkans, legal jurisdiction would be problematic, and they could make the transfer with greater safety, at least from the authorities. The presence of hostile agents was always a danger to be guarded against, of course. Gabrielle opened her purse and made sure the small Le Faucheux revolver was where she had positioned it. She pursed her lips. She would far rather have brought a shotgun for protection, but it would surely have been confiscated upon boarding. As this unsatisfactory toy-like revolver was all she had managed to conceal, it would have to do. Gabrielle did not know what the anarchist looked like. She only knew he would be traveling on a British passport, and he had been told to contact the attractive blonde French lady traveling alone. Gabrielle hoped the agent's notion of an attractive female corresponded to that of her superiors. She thought that aspect of the plan troublesomely vague. Among the qualifications she had listed for the assignment was her fluency in both German and English, although she had omitted the fact that her English was learned from books, and so she had little grasp of conversational idioms. Gabrielle had already decided that, to the extent feasible, she would conceal her knowledge of foreign languages in the hopes of provoking a loose comment or admission. 
Mentally reaffirming this part of her plan, she finished dressing quickly and left her cabin for the main salon, where she believed she stood the best chance of contacting the agent among the throng of boarding passengers. Do you have any firearms or incendiaries? Certainly not. Do you take me for the anarchist? Etienne Villon, who was in fact exactly that, declaimed these words with what he imagined to be the outrageous arrogance of an Englishman. He waved the folded document in his hand at the corpulent Bavarian customs clerk. I have the passport Britannique. The official took the forged passport from him, but eyed him with suspicion. Forgive me, he paused to read the name on the document, Herr Le Marchand. But you do not sound English, nor does your name sound English. English? I am a subject of the British crown, but certainly not English. I am Genesier from the island of Guernsey. The official frowned and read the passport more carefully. Guernsey? I have never heard of this. Genesier, Etienne repeated impatiently, his pretended anger beginning to give way to the real thing. From Guernsey. Ach, ja, it says it here. You are from the island of Guernsey. Yes, Guernsey, you, great. He choked off the expletive and took a breath to calm himself. It would do no good to enrage this representative of the German state apparatus. Frowning, the customs official spread the forged passport on his counter and selected a large and forbidding-looking rubber stamp from the rack in front of him. We have the long and glorious tradition of service to the Anglaise, Etienne added hastily. My grandfather was a general, Jean Le Marchand. The official stamped the passport and handed it back. You may board now. He commanded Wellington's cavalry at Salamanca. We thrashed those despicable Frenchies that day. Ja, ja, move along, bitte, the official said, his attention already on the overweight lady and her bored daughter standing next in line. Etienne, who was short and not particularly strong, puffed with exertion, carrying his valise and the vitally important document tube, up the folding metal stairway to the Zeppelin's boarding hatch. Perspiration suddenly ran down his face, and not simply from the physical labor. That was close, he thought. Ever since he had taken this assignment, his life had hung by the most slender of threads. The slightest misstep or mistake would surely lead to exposure, arrest, torture, and death. But what did it matter? The cause. Only the cause mattered. What was his life compared to the cause of freedom? Nothing. His life was nothing, and he would gladly give it for freedom, for freedom and justice, and truth. Truth was the most important cause of all, he thought, and he pocketed his forged passport. Gabrielle took her place at a small table in the salon, Chosen for its excellent view of the doors at either end of the long room, she ordered café au lait and thought through the mission. 
a member of a covert anarchist organization called the Chevalier Autonome du Peuple, independent Knights of the People, had stolen a complete set of engineering drawings of a new and quite advanced design of British Aether battleship, to be christened the Prince of Wales. Unfortunately, the theft was discovered almost at once, and all traffic across the Paracalais closed to prevent the agent's escape to France. He had instead made his way by fishing boat to Norway, and then had been helped to Munich by Volksritterbund, the German branch of his organization generally known simply as Der Bund. Once they made contact, she would exchange a sheaf of charcoal-sketched landscapes of the French countryside for the ether battleship plans, each rolled up in identical brown leather carrying tubes. I beg your pardon, miss, but are you bound for Istanbul? Two middle-aged gentlemen, one lean and one portly, occupied the table to her left. The heavier men who sat closer to her had asked the question in English. Although she understood him perfectly well, she gave him a puzzled look. Pardonnez-moi? Ah, French, he said to his lean companion, whose attention seemed more on his newspaper than the conversation. Well, damn me, eighteen months ago, in Belgium, we and the Huns were shooting them down like swine, and now frogs ride on the zeps as pretty as you please. He turned back to Gabrielle and spoke slowly and loudly. You, and he pointed forcefully to her several times, go, making a motion in the air back and forth with his left hand perhaps representing the passage of the Zeppelin, although Gabrielle could not be sure. Is tan bull, he finished, and put his four fingers pointing up from the top of his head like a bull's horns. Gabrielle laughed. Ah, we, oui, Istanbul. Jolly good, he said, and then turned back to his companion. Nothing like a French tart to liven up the landscape. His friend lowered the newspaper and looked at Gabrielle for a moment, nodded politely to her, and then went back to his reading. Best keep your mind on our business, the slender man said. Well, damn me. Speak of our business and in it walks, the first man said. His companion again lowered the newspaper, and the two of them watched a new arrival carry his bags through the entryway and tore at the bar. Armbruster, the portly man added, and his lips curled in a sneer as he said it. That chap behind the Prince of Wales mess, his companion said, folding the newspaper and now clearly interested. That's the one, a bounder for certain. We'd best keep an eye on him. The Prince of Wales, the name of the stolen ether battleship plans, Gabrielle felt a surge of excitement. Had she, by sheer chance, taken a seat by the very British agents she would have to guard against on this mission? And had she already identified the agent she was to contact? Trying not to show any particular interest, she followed their gaze and saw a tall man shouldering his way through the crowd. He certainly dressed as an Englishman, in tweeds, and he carried a circular leather document tube over one shoulder. It was not exactly the same as hers, larger and a lighter shade of brown leather, which was inconvenient, but 
how was der Bund to know the exact dimensions and color of the case she would bring? Without looking at the two British agents beside her, she recalled their exact words, another of her particular talents, and combed through them for any additional clues. Most of the words she understood, but what was a bounder? The English always mispronounced foreign words, sometimes she thought as a matter of pride. Could he have meant a member of der Bund? And the lean British agent had described this new arrival as a chap. What was a chap? Some sort of code, perhaps. What could it... Ah, of course. Chevalier autonome du peuple. Chap. The tall man stopped by the salon bar, lowered his valise and document case to the desk, and ordered a drink from a steward. Maintaining an appearance of outward calm, Gabrielle finished her café au lait and left a ten-fennic coin beside the saucer. She rose and crossed the crowded salon toward the men who, whiskey glass in hand, now watched her approach. He raised an eyebrow in quiet inquiry, and she answered in kind, bringing a knowing smile to his face. Aware that the British agents would be watching, she did not look at him, or address him directly, when she reached his side, but instead stood with her hands on the railing beside the large glass windows which overlooked the landing ground and stretching away behind it the city of Munich. Her eyes on the crowd below, she said in a quiet voice meant only for his ears, Bonjour, monsieur. You are perhaps interested in a French lady traveling alone? Before answering, he took a large swallow of whiskey. You must have read my mind, he replied. I hardly think it necessary. Your accent is quite good, by the way. Well, why wouldn't it be, he said. That was true, she thought. An agent passing for British would have paid special attention to this detail. Do you perhaps uh, have some pictures to show me? she said. Pictures? he repeated and then smiled. Why, yes, I have some very fine etchings in my stateroom I think you may find quite interesting. Bon, she said. Below the window the ground crews made ready to unmoor the zeppelin. Their shadows stretched behind them, rendered long and grotesque by the angle of the setting sun. The ship would be aloft in a few minutes. Gabrielle made a quick calculation as to how long before they would be safely over Austrian airspace. I will come to your cabin at eleven this evening. What is the number? He took another swallow of whiskey and then fetched a key from his pocket. One seven nine, he said. One seven nine, she repeated. Eleven this evening. Without looking at him, she turned and left. Waldo Armbruster watched her leave, watched her walk the length of the salon and felt a glow in his lower body, not entirely the result of the whiskey. How could he be so lucky with women and so damned unlucky at Baccarat? That was a mystery, which sometimes plagued him, but wouldn't trouble him much tonight, he imagined. He picked up his valise and the cylindrical leather fly-rod carrier, 
and set off to find his stateroom. A few minutes later, Etienne Villon, a.k.a. Etienne Le Marchand, entered the salon and found a prominent place in the center of the room where he would be clearly visible to the French agent and where he might pick her out as well. How many attractive French ladies would be traveling alone on a zeppelin? Not many, he hoped. He waited for an hour, waited as the crowd gradually thinned. He felt more and more exposed and alone, more and more as if he had walked into a trap. Soon he became certain of it. Very well. If the English had trapped him, then he would at least show them how a man of ideals, a man of principles, could die with dignity. Although his stomach churned with anxiety and he felt slightly nauseous, he squared his shoulders and looked around the room with an expression of haughty disdain. Ten minutes later, the steward's staff asked him to leave so they could set the tables for supper. To his surprise, no one attempted to arrest him when he did so. Later that evening, Waldo Armbruster rose from his chair in response to the knock at his stateroom door. He examined his pocket watch and his eyebrows went up. Almost an hour early, he said to himself. The young darling must have been particularly captivated by my charm. He drained the brandy and soda, his third, and walked somewhat unsteadily to the door. Throwing it open, he prepared to greet the delicious French lady, but his smile vanished. Oh, I can explain. At eleven o'clock precisely, Gabrielle turned the corner in the corridor which led to stateroom 179 and saw a small crowd of a dozen or so people in the passageway talking among themselves. As she grew near, she realized the crowd milled before the open door to the very stateroom she wished to visit. "'You must clear the passageway,' a white-coated steward said in German and made pushing motions with his hand. All passengers will please return to their cabins at once, by order of the Hauptzahlmeister. Gabrielle wondered what would have brought the Hauptzahlmeister, the vessel's chief purser, here. What has happened? she asked in German of a couple turning to leave. A murder, the woman answered. Quite ghastly, they say. A great deal of blood. Gabrielle pushed on through the thinning crowd of passengers and saw the two British agents leaving in the opposite direction. Were they behind this? What else was she to think? When she reached the doorway, the steward held out his hand as if to stop her. No, my dear lady, you must return to your cabin at once. But I have important business with the man in this cabin. If there has been foul play... I may know the reason why. Foul play, she heard a deep voice from inside the stateroom repeat. A tall, stout man of middle age, dressed in white tie and tails, appeared beside the steward. He was clearly not a member of the crew, and yet the steward immediately deferred to him. Baron Renfrew, the steward said. This lady says she had business with the deceased. 
What sort of business? the baron asked. Gabrielle opened her handbag and retrieved one of the business cards her superiors had provided as a cover for her mission. It read, Madame Gabrielle Courbière, Commissaire Priseur des Beaux-Arts, 13 Rue Madeleine, Le Havre, France. A praiser of fine art, the baron said. I did not suspect Armbruster's tastes ran to that. Gabrielle instantly noticed three things. The baron had no difficulty in reading French. He apparently knew the agent, and the agent's assumed name was Armbruster. As to his tastes, I have no opinion. Having met him only once and briefly, she said, he corresponded with me and said he had a number of previously unknown charcoal sketches of the French countryside by Jean-François Millet. Millet? the baron asked. Oui, Millet was one of the founders of the school Barbizon. If the landscapes are authentic, they are quite valuable. I paid Monsieur Arambraster a considerable sum in advance, with the balance to be delivered if I could determine it their authenticity. I have a proprietary interest in them, you see. He carried them in the cylindrical leather case. Was such a case found? The Baron's expression flickered in surprise. Cylindrical case? You'd better come in, he said, and the steward immediately stood aside and bowed. Wait out here and see that we are not disturbed, the baron added to the steward. Etienne Villon closed the door of his stateroom behind him and leaned against it, his head reeling. His aimless wandering looking for the French agent had led him to the crowd at the murder scene, and there he had seen the woman who must be his contact, the overheard discussion of the landscape charcoals, her French accent, and above all her dizzying beauty, left no doubt in his mind. He had not dared to make contact with her in public, but now he seethed with anxiety. He saw her talking with Baron Renfrew, saw her enter the stateroom and the door close behind her. Was it possible she did not know she stood face to face with the very embodiment of everything they fought against? No. Surely a French agent would know that man on sight and understand the terrible menace he represented. But she had walked into unspeakable, terrifying danger without a trace of fear or even of hesitation. This was bravery of an order he had never witnessed before. Extraordinary bravery and celestial beauty combined in one woman, and all of it dedicated to their common cause, a woman truly worth dying for. He must find a way to rescue her. It seems to me the man simply fell and hit his head on the corner of this small table, the slender ship's doctor said as he polished the lenses of his pince-nez glasses. Beside him the chief purser nodded rapidly, but with a look of clear distress on his ruddy, black-whiskered face, Gabrielle could imagine numerous reasons why he would prefer an accident to a murder. She took a step closer and examined the body. Armbruster lay on his stomach, with the small wooden table beside him. 
A corner of the table top was jaggedly broken off, and the left side of the man's skull was cracked open, brains exposed. That was quite interesting. She had never before seen a man's brains. There was also, as the lady in the corridor had suggested, a considerable amount of blood, which had begun to coagulate, but was by no means dry. Much of it had puddled on the hardwood deck around the dead man's head, but she also saw evidence of a fine spray of blood, probably from the impact with the table. She noticed that no one had stepped in the blood, so that aspect of the scene was certainly undisturbed. Perhaps he fell, she said. Or perhaps it was staged to look this way, n'est-ce pas? If this was an accident, the drawings will still be here. The doctor forcefully put his pince-nez glasses back on and scrawled, clearly annoyed to have his opinion contradicted. The chief purser shook his head in alarm. No, you must leave this to us, Madame Corbière, the purser said, but the baron cleared his throat and the two other men immediately turned to him. Considering the strained international situation, the baron said, and the delicate relations between Germany and France, the Zeppelin line may prefer you to exercise a special consideration for this lady's business interests. Although to Gabrielle's ear the baron offered this as if solicitor's advice, not a command, the chief purser straightened to attention. Of course, Herr Baron, danke schön. Now let us find this case. For the next ten minutes, the four of them, Gabrielle, the baron, the doctor, and the chief purser, searched the small cabin for the leather document tube but found nothing but a half-empty bottle of brandy, a small book of solicitous photographs, slightly more than twenty pounds sterling in British currency, and armbrusters' clothing and toiletries. He had the leather case with him when he bought it this afternoon, Gabrielle insisted. The lady is unfortunately correct, the doctor told the chief purser. I saw it myself. The chief purser stared in appeal at the doctor for a moment, but then his shoulders sagged, and he shook his head. Ach, a murder! Never before has there been a murder on the Hochflieger Ost. When we land in Vienna later today, the authorities will want to know everything. Our passengers will be detained. It will be a great embarrassment for the firm. Ah, you baron, of course will not be inconvenienced. The baron nodded his acknowledgment of what was apparently obvious to everyone but Gabrielle. You are perhaps the owner of this line? she asked. He gave her a quizzical smile in return. I have no formal association with the Zeppelin firm. The chief purser allowed me to be present as a courtesy. Armbruster was a fellow countryman and uh, an acquaintance. He did not say friend, Gabrielle noticed. A countryman? You are English. Your German is quite good. Not exactly English. Welsh, I suppose. He paused and smiled again as if at a private joke. My family is originally from Germany. I still have relatives there. Ah, très bien. 
Now as to the murder, the chief purser is concerned with the delay and scandal, we. Oui? But if we discover the criminal ourselves before we reach Vienna, all will be well. The man who has the missing case is surely our murderer. The man or men, she thought. But how shall we proceed? the chief purser asked, and looked at the others in desperation. The doctor answered in a voice clearly accustomed to giving commands. I see no alternative to a polite but insistent search of the passenger cabins for the missing tube. The chief purser began to object, but the doctor waved him to silence and pressed on. Surely the Viennese police will do the same, and with less consideration for our passengers and less discretion. The baron frowned in thought for a moment and looked up when he realized the other men were waiting for his opinion. Yes, I do not suppose there is a good alternative. Gabrielle took one last look around the floor of the stateroom to see if anything was amiss, a button perhaps, fortuitously lost from the murderer's coat or something dropped from a pocket, but she saw nothing out of place. She did notice that the baron's shoes were polished almost to a mirror brightness, but there were three very small dull dots on them, three spots where they did not reflect the light. Dried blood? Surrounded as she was by the baron's allies, she chose not to reveal what she had just noticed. That was part one of Frank Chadwick's complete short story, Murder on the Hochfliegerost. We'll have the finale next time. Be sure to check out Frank's excellent science-based alternate history novel, The Forever Engine, for more set in this world. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, to Rika Daniel, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a dark elf princess who knows how to party, a wand of alignment demoralization, and a jacuzzi filled with concentrated healing potion, to writer Bob Kruger, and to Dungeons & Dragons designers and developers Jonathan Tweet, Rob Heinso, and Scaff Elias. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs>